0: Welcome to Culture Matters, my podcast that dives deep into the many facets of organizational culture. I'm your host, Subu Kalpati, a learning, leadership and organizational development professional. Understanding organizational culture has become increasingly important in today's rapidly changing world of work. Culture can impact everything from employee engagement and job satisfaction to productivity and innovation. Today we have a very special guest joining us, Professor Rishikesh Krishnan, Director of IM Bangalore and a leading expert in strategy and innovation. With over 140 publications, spanning from academic journals to the popular press, Professor Rishi is an accomplished author and thought leader. In this conversation, we discuss the steps to enable innovation in any organization, how to tap into the creative potential of employees, dealing with honest failures, and so much more. Professor, welcome to this conversation.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Great. Um, So the focus for this particular episode of the podcast is, of course, innovation and how do you build a culture of innovation. Uh, and in that uh, context it's wonderful to have you uh, professor and thanks for spending the time with us uh, for uh, addressing this topic um i'm sure a lot of listeners uh, for this particular episode at least are curious to know about um uh, you know how you got into this field of um, innovation and studying innovation as an area of focus um if you can uh, you know tell us that uh, how how you got interested in this area maybe that's a great starting point and then we'll take it from there
1: I think largely came from watching my father. So he started his own company somewhere around the mid-1970s. So he was what you might today call a startup entrepreneur. But at that time, the term was not very popular. Mm -hmm. So I watched him over uh, the 20 years in which he ran a manufacturing company and another 10 years in which he ran a software company. And uh, during that time, he must have created at least 70 to 80 different products. Uh, both antennas and uh, specialized software for various engineering applications. So I guess a lot of my interest in innovation came from just watching him and his team. And they developed all of this without any collaboration or any other kind of partnership, largely on their own efforts. So I guess that was the seed for getting into innovation.
0: Wonderful. Thank you. And you've been doing this for a while now. You've been researching uh, innovation for a while, both in India and globally. Um, if I were to, uh, you know, and it's, it's an overarching question. So if I were to ask you, um, what have been your biggest learnings uh, so far uh, now that you've been doing this for so many years? Would you pick any top uh, two or three learnings uh, from your uh, study of uh, innovation over all these years?
1: So I think uh, the biggest takeaway from all these years of studying innovation is about how important the organization is to the entire innovation process. Um, I think there's a big difference between an individual trying to do something and uh, innovation happening in the context of an organization, whether it be a company, a nonprofit, an academic institution, or a research lab. So I think the big uh, takeaway has been that Uh, It's not only about the culture, but you might broadly say the climate in the organization, the structure, the leadership, the kind of uh, motivation that the leadership gives to the teams, the amount of freedom and flexibility they give to the teams, all of this seems to have a significant impact on whether innovation happens or not. It's also about having the time and space to do innovation. So. I mean, this, of course, as a subject is not new. People have been studying the interface between organization and innovations now for, I think, maybe 30, 40 years, maybe even more, 50 years or something. But it still remains uh, an interesting topic to look at.
0: Absolutely. And it's, it's fascinating to see how it's also evolved over the years. Um, especially with startups now and we'll come to that Um, you've written a couple of books and you've published uh, a variety of research papers on the subject Uh, maybe if i were to ask uh, ask you to take a step back and help us understand in the context of an organization you kind of uh, you know bifurcated that individual and organization so in the context of an organization how would you uh, define innovation
1: so i would uh, first define innovation in the context of a business organization Uh, That's important because an organization which is doing open-ended blue sky research might look at innovation a little differently. But in a business organization, uh, we usually believe that the starting point or trigger for innovation is some problem or challenge that the organization is facing. For example, it could be a competitor has come out with a better product. It could be that you're not competitive on costs. Maybe you have a quality issue. This is often the starting point for innovation in a business context. It doesn't have to be, but this is often the context or the reason why innovation starts. Except for a small group of companies which enjoy monopoly positions in their respective industries and therefore have access to a lot of resources to do blue sky work. In most competitive industries, companies don't really have that luxury. So instead, what they have to do is largely focus their innovation on problem solving. Now, if you uh, take the problem or challenge as a trigger, but you have an existing solution or a solution which is easily adaptable to solve the problem, then you really don't need too much innovation. You just take the solution and uh, make it work. However, if the existing solutions don't actually solve the problem well, you've got to think fresh. And that's where the second phase of the innovation process, which is the whole ideation stage comes into being. Ideation is very important because that's where all the novelty comes in. And as I mentioned earlier, you're doing this because the existing solutions don't work very well. But just the fact that you have developed some ideas doesn't necessarily solve the problem. You probably need to experiment with the ideas. You will need to refine them. Sometimes you need to combine them. Maybe you need to club them with ideas which have come from elsewhere. So there's a whole lot of experimentation which has to be done. And that's really the third part of the innovation process. And finally, last but not the least, we would call something innovation only if it has impact, which essentially means that it gives some positive value to a stakeholder. It could be an internal stakeholder, it could be an external stakeholder like a customer. But unless you're finally seeing value being created for stakeholders, you won't consider it a part of an innovation. So, innovation essentially has these four uh, parts it's the uh, trigger or the problem, then there is the ideation or the part where the novelty comes in, then there's the experimentation, and finally, there's the impact or the benefit to a stakeholder. So, this is what we consider to be innovation
0: kind of follow-up question to that is that if an organization wants to uh, follow this process right the four-step process that you just mentioned uh, which is uh, the the trigger to ideation to actually experimenting and then looking at the impact of the value um, uh, that's a process that you mentioned right and a lot of leaders um, sometimes uh, struggle um, in driving Uh, innovation as a process as a culture and you also briefly touched upon climate as as one of the uh, you know could also be a driving factor so why do you think that happens and are there any bottlenecks that uh, leaders might typically face uh, when they try to drive a culture of innovation in their organization what's been your experience
1: so when we were doing the research for our book eight steps to innovation we spoke to a number of companies and the question we asked them is, what are the challenges or obstacles you are facing to do innovation on a regular basis? We got three sets of answers, which in a way uh, answer the question you just asked. The first set of companies told us that our biggest challenge is in having a good pipeline of ideas. Essentially, we don't seem to generate enough ideas. Could be due to multiple reasons. Could be people are too busy just doing their day-to-day jobs. Delivering on whatever uh, requirements they have, or uh, maybe there's not enough motivation or encouragement, maybe there are no resources, whatever be the reason, there's not enough ideation happening. And essentially, there's a pipeline problem. The second set of companies told us that in their companies, they do have idea pipelines. People are generating ideas, but nothing much seems to be happening after the ideas are getting generated. In other words, the ideas are getting stuck. They seem to lack velocity, and uh, there are no organizational processes that enable those ideas to be moved forward, tested, validated, etc. So we call that problem the velocity problem. And the third set of companies told us, no, we have pipeline. We even have some velocity. But our biggest challenge is we don't seem to have enough impact coming out of the process. The conversion ratio of ideas into successful innovation is very low. And therefore, there is some skepticism about whether innovation can actually take root in our organization. So we call this the batting average problem, just to give it a cricketing metaphor. So uh, at a high level, these are the three big challenges. You have the pipeline problem, you have the velocity problem, and you have the batting average problem. Of course, when you talk to people within organizations, they usually give you a slightly different set of factors, though they are all related to the three challenges I just told you about. So people in an organization would typically tell you, you know, there's not enough resources, all the processes are laid out, people don't want us to tinker with them, they just want us to deliver. Uh, There's no funding available, even if we want to come up with some new ideas. Uh, There's very little encouragement for the ideas that we uh, propose. Sometimes we don't even know who it is we should go and talk about. Sorry, talk to about the idea. Uh, so uh, they'll tell you a whole lot of things like this, or they'll tell you we are scared of failing. There's really no safety net. If we try something different, um, You know, we could get into trouble because it might finally look like we are wasting uh, organizational resources. So you will find a whole lot of uh, sort of day-to-day behavioral issues which people speak about as some of the obstacles to innovation in organizations. And interestingly enough, these are fairly similar across companies. Another interesting thing we found is we asked uh, companies, and I continue to ask this question, uh, what percentage of the creative potential of your employees do you think is used by the company? Or in other words, are you really using the creativity and innovation potential of individuals and we get uh, sometimes very very low numbers for this so sometimes we have uh, people telling us that maybe only about 15 to 20 percent of the creative potential of employees is being used sometimes even less the highest you typically see is something like 40 50 percent so what this really means is there is a lot of creative potential there's a lot of creative energy People do have ideas, but uh, somehow this is not getting translated into innovation.
0: Um, I will uh, I will come back to that point because uh, it it also kind of segues very well uh, into this entire um, uh, you know conversation or point about culture that I wanted to touch upon. But even before before we go that uh, go there, um, there is one point I think that you also make in your research in your book. Um, about uh, Jugaad, which seems to be a very Indian way of, um, you know, focusing at innovation, I could be wrong. Um, uh, so could you help us firstly understand what, you know, this Jugard style of thinking and working is? And do you think we've moved away from there? Is it uh, or is it still very much ingrained in mindsets and cultures of organizations?
1: So Jugard uh, as a word doesn't have an exact English translation. The best translation that we can find is creative improvisation, but maybe that doesn't tell the whole story about uh, what uh, jugad is about. Uh, it's not necessarily the case that India is the only country where such approaches exist. There are uh, similar kind of approaches which are talked about in the literature from other countries as well. But what jugad really seems to be at its heart is an effort to come up with a creative solution under a lot of constraints typically resource constraints so it's sometimes a kind of quick fix rather than a very durable solution and that's where jugad gets into trouble the creative improvisation part is usually not the problem the problem is that it sometimes involves cutting corners or coming up with quick fix solutions that are not scalable or uh, durable Why is this a challenge? I think this is a challenge because if you look at the way customer expectations are today, customers have got used to a much higher quality standard at a reasonable price. And this transition to my mind happened because of the mobile handset industry. If you rewind now, say about 15 years ago, maybe it's 2005, 2006, when the mobile revolution was really taking off in India. That's the time when people were buying these really low cost handsets like uh, the early Nokia handsets, which were not very fancy, not very sophisticated, but they were pretty reliable. They were pretty intuitive and there were a whole lot of stuff you could do with them. So I think this gave people a clear sense that uh, low price does not necessarily mean low quality. It doesn't mean poor user experience. So you can have low price, but at the same time, you should demand and expect a good user experience. So this is where Juga sometimes gets into trouble because what starts as a quick fix solution or as a patchwork solution and might work to, to start with may not uh, scale very well. Now just to give you a very simple example, you look at the vehicle which uh, represents what the word jugad is supposed to be about. It's a sort of transport vehicle which is knocked together in farms in some parts of North India. They take all the available scrap, basically put it together. They don't use a proper uh, engine but they often recondition maybe a water pump or something else to do the job of the engine. And essentially, it it moves, but it moves slowly and it usually belches a lot of smoke and it's not the best vehicle uh, to drive on the road. So if you just think of the jugad, today, I don't think a young farmer in a, any village in India would willingly go and buy a vehicle like that or even get a vehicle like that made because that farmer's aspirations have gone up. Uh, his expectations about what a product should be like are very different from what they would have been 20 years ago. So this is the challenge as far as Jugad is concerned. You want to perhaps retain the ability to improvise and be creative. But at the same time, you have to bring in enough engineering or technical know-how in order to make the product or service scalable uh, with a good, highly... A satisfying user experience
0: um i i want to touch upon a little bit uh, about uh, you know the 8 steps to innovation that you've um, uh, your book essentially with Vinay Um, b- While we don't need to go through all the st- eight steps I'm sure the listeners can go and check out the book it's a fantastic book. Um, A couple of things that caught my eye was you know in the opening pages you uh, you cite the example of um, this gentleman called Tiagarajan Ramaswamy, who was an engineering student and he reworked the design of commercially available wet grinders for his mother to make idlis which were as soft as the ones from traditionally hand-ground uh, grinders uh, and won several awards for this design and this was uh, i think you wrote the book much before uh, firms like id fresh food were mass producing italy batter for everyone as they are today uh, on a a commercial scale so i I kind of put these two things in my mind and um, question for you professor is do you think we have crossed some kind of a tipping point when it comes to innovation uh, within the startup ecosystem do you think it's become more systemic now uh, within the ecosystem and, and what's your view on that
1: uh, that's difficult to say. You know, uh, my own sense about uh, startups in India is that they are first not necessarily solving the right problems. <laughs> so, uh, as I told you, problem—the choice of the problem—is the starting point for the innovation process. And uh, oftentimes, at least anecdotally, it appears that they are trying to adapt models which have worked elsewhere to the Indian context. So while it is true that they are doing or following some creative approaches, they might be adopting philosophies like design thinking and so on. They certainly don't appear to be at the cutting edge of innovation, at least as measured by traditional metrics like R&D spend or number of patents and things like that. Of course, it could be argued that maybe that's not the kind of innovation they're focused on. Maybe they're focusing on business model innovation or some other uh, innovation in the entire value chain. Mm. Uh, However, uh, I think just looking at the sort of patent portfolio, I mean, you just take, for example, the 100 odd unicorns that have come out from India and you do a quick search on the number of patents those unicorns have. Uh, it's not a very long list. So uh, if you were to contrast that, say, with a similar set of companies in the U.S., you would probably see a very different profile as far as uh, intellectual property is concerned. Right. So that just suggests to me that they, while they may very well be doing some innovation, it's certainly not the kind of cutting-edge technological innovations you might see in certain other countries of the world.
0: Interesting um so therefore I, I to pivot a little bit um and talk uh, you know talk a little bit about uh, culture uh, right and also climate as you mentioned um uh, what do you think leaders can do differently to build a culture of innovation uh, in their respective organizations these could be commercial these could be uh, other kinds of setups but primarily what do you think leaders can do more of
1: well you know i must tell you uh, Subhu, that i'm i'm a little uh, careful in using this word culture. Mm. The reason I am a bit careful about using the word culture is at least when I discuss things with executives in the classroom, I find that anything that can't be explained well, they put in a box and call it culture. Right. So it's sometimes the sort of residual which is not explained by other solutions. So I think one has to be a little careful in using this term and make sure that we are uh, clear about what we are doing. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: The second thing we also know is from studies of organizational change, that uh, it's quite difficult to change things like core values. Uh, It's uh, perhaps not that difficult, but still fairly difficult to change attitudes and beliefs. Mm. But what might be a little easier to change is behavior. And that's what most of the uh, incentives and uh, you know right. all the performance management systems and all that try to do. They basically try to change the way people do things at the behavioral level. Right. The assumption is that once you start changing the behavior and it becomes ingrained in the way people do things, it will also sort of in a way trickle down or go back into the basic culture and values of the organization. So, when you therefore look at uh, how is it you can enhance the level of innovation in a company, uh, I would generally not start to answer that question by looking at culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would instead try to look at the question by saying, okay, what do you need to do to allow people to exercise their uh, creative potential? I mean, pretty much along the lines of what we were discussing earlier. And that's essentially the kind of thing we try to address in the eight steps to innovation framework. For example, uh, we said, you know, uh, people often have ideas. It's not as though they don't have ideas, Mm. but they may be scared to share them or maybe they don't know who to share them with. So the first thing you need to do when you are uh, embarking on innovation is... Uh, create a good idea management system that makes it easier for people in the organization or sometimes even outside to share their ideas with the company so you basically try to take away some of the barriers or obstacles that are uh, coming in the way you might also in an organization want to run some campaigns you might want to create some enthusiasm around the people generating and sharing those ideas so that you know they feel it's kind of an organizational priority You might also want to uh, make this whole idea generation and collection process focused around a particular objective. The reason that helps is once the objective is something that aligns with the company's priorities, the company is more inclined to put resources and managerial time behind it. So much so that the ideas that are given get the kind of uh, review that they deserve and the better ideas among them get sufficient resources to be acted on so that's another important thing that we uh, keep emphasizing in all our um, discussions about uh, innovation uh, of course there are other elements as well for example one of the things you want to do is probably remove the fear of failure you want but at the same time most companies are worried that if they give the message that it's okay to fail that people will use that as a license to you know not do things seriously so people, therefore, have amended that a little bit and they said, okay, we want to tolerate honest failure, not just failure. person should have made a good attempt and if he or she fails after that, then that's okay. So how do you convey this message to uh, people? So there are m- various ways in which it's uh, happened to some degree. For example, the Tatas, as part of their uh, annual innovation contest Innovista, they have a category called Dare to Try. So the Dare to Try Award is given to a group of individuals who took on a really challenging project and in spite of their best efforts were not successful in achieving the outcome. Now these awards are given on par with all the innovation awards. So the idea is they're trying to give this message that failure is okay as long as you really put in a significant effort to make it happen. Another way people try to give this message that failure is okay Is by uh, spreading lots of stories in the organization about people who, you know, maybe failed early in their career, but later on went on to occupy high positions. So you will even hear these stories about Jack Welch in GE about how, somewhere in the middle of his career, he was setting up a new plastics factory for GE in Europe. There was actually a significant uh, accident at that site, and I think the factory had to be rebuilt. But G didn't penalize Jack Welch because they found, you know, it wasn't his fault. And as you all know, that he went on to become the CEO of the company. So, people, I think, spread or deliberately, you know, make these stories better known across the company, so that people get the message that it's okay to uh, fail. I uh, might also like to focus on the fact that the managerial practices can also have an impact on whether innovation happens or not Uh, there's a lot of interesting work by teresa amabil at stanford and a few things which uh, she's talked about uh, stick in my mind the first is you're more likely to see innovation when people's interests and their skills are aligned with the job they are doing Uh, if that uh, alignment is not there you're much less likely to see innovation happening the reason is simple, because you probably want to drive innovation, preferably through intrinsic motivation rather than extrinsic. You can't really buy innovation in that sense. So if people are doing the kind of work they like to do, if they're doing it in an area where they have expertise, they are more likely to try out new things and to do things in a in a different way the second thing uh, which uh, teresa mobil talks about uh, quite a bit is on ta- is about resources how much resources should you give so what she argues is that obviously giving too much doesn't make sense but on the other extreme you don't want to give too little either because if you give so few resources that people think it's not possible to get the job done they won't even try so you want to give a little less than the ideal amount so that people stretch but you know not much more than that The uh, third point that she makes, which, uh, again, I think is an important point, is that while you as a manager, for example, might set a goal or a challenge for an individual, uh, if you want more innovation to happen, you've got to give people flexibility in how they get the job done. If you are uh, too finicky about You know, there's only one way to do it. You're really not likely to see a whole lot of innovation happening in the organization. And the fourth point she makes, which I believe is very important, is the importance of supervisory encouragement. And this is, I think, much more close to probably what you mean by culture of innovation. For example, someone comes to you with an idea. How do you respond to that idea? Do you encourage that person? Or do you sort of, you know, ask so many questions that that person gets scared and runs away? Uh, How do you essentially have a conversation with somebody who's come to you uh, with an idea? How quickly do you respond is is important. What kind of response you give is important. So essentially what you might call supervisory encouragement is an important facet of whether innovation happens or not uh, in the organization. So I think these are some of the elements which are closely related to uh, what you are probably calling uh, culture.
0: Very interesting. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Professor. Um, And yeah, I think it it makes sense is that it's also about uh, are are people enabled uh, to bring out the best in themselves through these, uh, you know, four uh, methods that you just mentioned, uh, which talks about, uh, you know, directly is my supervisor or my manager encouraging me? And are systems and processes in place within the organization for me to, uh, you know, make good use of my creative potential? And if, if that exists, then I'm able to contribute and make meaningful.
1: Yeah, uh, and there's evidence yeah. that this is true, because I, I am aware of at least one large IT services company. Mm. Where when they did a survey within the organization trying to find out why more innovation is not happening, one of the highest frequency responses they got from the associates is that the problem is our managers don't uh, encourage us, they don't give us enough time, they're all the time just worried about the immediate deliverables and they essentially don't give us the kind of encouragement we require. And therefore, that company then decided to do a whole series of uh, HR interventions with the managers, essentially focusing on how they can become catalysts for innovation rather than obstacles to innovation.
0: There's one... um... You know, uh, point in in eight steps to innovation that kind of caught my eye. Uh, in this context of um, you know having the right kind of climate, is is something called as uh, communities of practice. I think that's the that's the terminology that you utilize. Um, can you throw some or shed some light uh, on you know what are these and uh, how can organizations build these within their ecosystems?
1: So the whole idea of a community of practice is that this is a group of people who come together. Not because they've been forced by the company or mandated through some corporate policy, but they've come together because they have a mutual interest in that particular domain. So one company which historically did a lot of good work on building communities of practice was Mindtree, uh, and again, an IT services company. Mm. So at one point of time, I know Mindtree had as many as 50 communities of practice the company had a very simple policy they were quite willing to encourage any group of people who came together they were willing to give them some time even during the working day to you know meet and perhaps even support them with a meeting room and maybe some refreshments and things like that the idea was that uh, and these communities of practice were across varying uh, disciplines. I mean, they were some of them were related to marketing, some of them were related to technology, some of them were related to new programming languages, some of them were related to new frameworks and paradigms. I mean, you could have a cloud uh, community of practice, you could have a Java community of practice, right. you could say, I'm going to look at, uh, you know, digital marketing community of practice so the advantage of the community of practice is because people have come together out of their own interest and they are essentially excited about exchanging ideas with others you really don't have to go out of your way to uh, incentivize them or in other in any other way try to goad to them to do innovation so Essentially, you're, again, it's pretty similar to the Teresa Mabel argument, you're trying to tap into their intrinsic motivation, which uh, is basically manifested because of the fact that they've all come together, uh, because of a common interest in a particular topic. So that's basically how and those communities of practice can be very vibrant sources of ideas, and uh, even uh, final innovations.
0: Related point, uh, Professor, is, um, you know, and you touched upon this earlier um, briefly, which is about design thinking as as one of the tools that can be used to spur innovation in an organization. And uh, I was also, again, relating this back to Satya Nadella's comment that design thinking is a very important tool for innovation. And one of the core tenets of design thinking is empathy. Uh, which is that you need to really understand your user to be able to design uh well for the experience um right as as one manifestation of that empathy um so if if this becomes um you know mainstream meaning if organizations truly adopt design thinking as a as a tool as, as a practice um does this also mean and this is a bit of a stretch um uh, does this also mean that therefore empathy becomes a core competence among leaders for them to be able to build a culture of innovation in an organizational setup Um What's your view on that?
1: Well, this particular aspect of design thinking is not necessarily new. I think for the longest time, people in the areas of product design, product development have been talking about the need to immerse yourself in the lives of users in order to understand what their real needs are. And how they use products and services in their uh, day-to-day life. Mm. Now, uh, obviously, if you want to understand this well, you have to spend time with them in the way they live life. So this as an idea, I mean, long before this term design thinking became popular, Mm. this idea has been around and particularly companies in the consumer goods space. Have been practicing this concept for the longest period of time. Hmm. So, uh, so here, I mean, empathy probably means uh, something slightly different from the way we use the word in everyday usage. Essentially, you must be curious and interested in what people do and how they do it so that you can really understand their context well and therefore come up with ideas for solutions that are uh, congruent to the context in which uh, they are working. Uh, I'll give you an uh, interesting example from a story I read a long time ago. So this is about uh, Procter & Gamble in Mexico. Uh, They were uh, very keen to sell a fabric whitener of theirs, which apparently was very successful in other markets. And uh, it seemed to them that uh, Mexico was a natural fit for this product because people in Mexico take a lot of pride in their clothing and particularly if they say for example wearing white clothes they would really like the clothes to be spotless. However in spite of uh, this uh, conviction that this should be successful in Mexico their sales were remained uh, pretty anemic and they were not really achieving the kind of sales they expected. So they decided to spend some time trying to understand this problem. So as part of PNG's whole cost of immersion program, a group of people spent time with uh, a group of uh, Mexican, uh, I think it was housewives essentially. And what they found was that the problem was not that the people didn't want to use the whitener. The problem was very different. The problem was that uh, like it's often been in India in the past, Many people in Mexico didn't have running water and they had to go and fetch water in buckets and other containers and carry it over long distances. And apparently this particular fabric whitener, uh, once you had applied it to the fabric, To get the chemical out of the fabric required a lot of water. I mean, you needed to basically rinse it multiple times. And that just wasn't an economical use of water. And given the kind of pain the housewives had to uh, experience in order to collect water, it just didn't make sense for them. So after this immersion, they finally understood the problem. And then they reformulated the product in such a way that you needed much less water to sort of wash it off. And then the product started doing much better. So this is a very sort of, you know, typical example of why it's important to immerse yourself in the needs of customers and have that basic interest or what you're calling empathy in the lives of customers so that you can address the problem in a comprehensive way. However, let me also add that uh, in this uh, today's digital era, there are some other methods of identifying needs which are emerged which don't always involve the kind of uh, customer immersion which we traditionally spoke about. And that, of course, as you know, is the fact that a lot of data is getting generated by the usage patterns of uh, people. You also have the opportunity in the digital economy to do a lot of experiments to understand, for example, whether feature A or feature B is better. So. The customer immersion or the kind of design thinking that you might have had to practice in the pre-digital and data era is sometimes not, I mean, it may still be required in part, but there are other ways in which you can understand the needs of the customer without uh,
0: actually physically immersing yourself uh, in the consumer's life. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, the point about uh, data coming in into play and helping you understand your users better, I think, is a fascinating point. You don't necessarily need to do the kind of immersion in the way that you traditionally would do in a consumer-facing organization. Probably, uh, has changed uh, in the way that you do it in a digital setup. I think that's a that's a very interesting point. Um, any, um, you know, we we briefly touched upon startups, and you said that there might be some merits um, in the way they innovate. Any recent examples of uh, innovation, maybe in the digital? Um, uh, uh, you know, ecosystem that's caught your eye uh, of late?
1: I, I've, I've been impressed by the way, for example, in the health tech domain, mm. companies have been able to you know, understand the needs well and come up with uh, innovative solutions. For example, we have a company like Niramai, which is using thermal imaging to detect uh, breast cancer early. Uh, so they've overcome multiple problems. First problem is the sort of social obstacles to people getting tested. The fact that X-rays and radiation were often the traditional methods and they are not the safest methods around. And the fact also that the thermal imaging has is much easier to do and it can actually be done at lower cost. So all of these have come together in the kind of breast cancer detection that uh, niramai has uh, pioneered. Or you take example of, say, Cloud Physician, which is a company that provides, um, I mean, it's a basically a telemedicine solution, but essentially allows remote monitoring of an ICU facility mm. so that even if you don't have, the skilled manpower or the intensivists who are needed to man an ICU, you can have a company like a cloud physician remotely uh, managing that ICU uh, for you. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the domain in which I perhaps see a lot of uh, interesting examples of uh, good understanding, of well, first good identification of problems, and then uh, good understanding of the problems and coming up with uh, alternate solutions. uh, Or you could even look at a company like Dozy, which initially tried to study why people were not sleeping well. And their original focus was on solving the problem of sleep apnea. But during the COVID pandemic, they realized that the same solution they were using for remote monitoring of sleep patterns could instead be used for remote monitoring of other vital symptoms. And this gave them an opportunity to jump in during the COVID pandemic. And now they've actually pivoted largely to doing that rather than just addressing the limited domain of sleep challenges, which they were uh, looking at earlier. So that's perhaps the domain I am most uh, sort of excited about when I look at uh, innovation happening.
0: Great. Uh, Thanks, Professor. I think um, those are my questions for you. Uh, thank you so much for uh, you know steering this uh, fairly complex uh, topic and uh, you know enlightening uh, me and I'm sure the listeners who are listening into this uh, conversation about um how to uh, first of all define innovation look at how you can systematically uh, lay it out across the organization what is it that you can do culturally both from a managerial lens and a job design lens uh, how do you bring it out and um, some recent examples of what innovation can look like in practice um, uh, and going forward, some areas of opportunity, I think also you identified along the way. Uh, So Professor, thank you so much for uh, spending the time. It's been a pleasure having you for this uh, podcast episode. Hey, thank you, Sugu, always good to talk to you and uh, great questions. So I loved Professor Rishi's insights throughout this conversation. First, the fact that only a fraction of organizations acknowledge that they truly harness the creative potential of their people. Think about how much more satisfied and engaged our people would be if we consciously allowed them the space to innovate. Second, I also love the insight about aligning our interests and skills with our day-to-day jobs. And finally, it is virtually impossible to build a culture of innovation if your managers don't give you the space and aren't supportive of your ideas. Until next time, I hope this episode helps you consciously construct a culture of innovation at your workplace by advocating for the right set of practices, processes, and support systems for your people.